So as you uh, turn in your Bibles, our scripture reading today and our passage is we is in Luke 12, the last few verses of Luke 12, beginning in verse 49. I've I've pointed this out a few times before that there are uh, there are some hard things in the Bible, hard hard things that even Jesus himself has said. In fact, so many that uh, there are many pastors uh, who have who will do full sermon series uh, called the hard sayings of Jesus or the hard sayings in the Bible. There's a very thick book uh, that you can purchase called the hard sayings in the Bible. Uh, now, some some things in the Bible are hard because, um, well, just because they're just hard to understand. Like we're not, we're just not smart enough for some of the things. Like some of Jesus' sayings are hard because they're intentionally vague. So Jesus even tells us that the reason he teaches parables is to make, to make you work for it. Uh, to make, to veil some truths from some, even while making them available to others. Um, other times, we just, as I said, Jesus will say something or teach something, and, and we just don't have an experience to go along with it. We don't know how to understand it. So when Jesus talks about his return uh, and things that will uh, kind of pre-happen, pre-something, his return, like we watch those things and he tells us about them. We think, well, I don't really, I don't have a category for this. I don't know how to understand this. Um, today's passage starts with not either of those because there's a third reason that Jesus' sayings are hard. And it's not because they're hard to understand. Rather, it's because they're pretty straightforward and they're just hard for us to want to hear. So would you uh, stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Begin in verse 49 in Luke chapter 12. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? 
And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So as most of you are probably aware by now, uh, Timothy Keller uh, passed away on Friday morning. Um, Timothy Keller, a pastor in the PCA, um, church planter in Manhattan, New York, founded Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and then uh, the network of church planting called City to City. On Thursday, just before Tim Keller passed away, Pastor Harry Reeder, uh, pastor at Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham. He was the church planter at Christ Covenant in Charlotte, North Carolina. He also passed away. Last Sunday, on Mother's Day, Pastor Stephen Smallman, who was the church planter of McLean Presbyterian Church and the pastor there for 28 years, uh, he passed away. Uh, Three really pillars and just stalwarts of faith in the PCA. You can even go outside the PCA, and this week, uh, pastor and author named Gordon uh, Ketty, whom very few of you probably know, but some, if you've read some commentaries, you might recognize his name. He passed away. Uh, He was a pastor at a church in State College, Pennsylvania, outside of Penn State, for many years. Um, So Harry Reeder, so he was an amazing preacher and very good with words. And uh, it's more of a humorous quote, but the best one I could find uh, that kind of spoke of Harry's heart. Uh, He said, uh, and this might be convicting for several of you as I look around, he said, reading the Bible on an electronic device is sort of like kissing your wife through a screen door. I mean, you can do it, but there's just something off. Now, Tim Keller, you know, there could be thousands upon thousands of quotes for Tim Keller, but this one seemed appropriate, especially for this passage. Again, it could be convicting for all of us. Contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. But Christians should reverse that, allowing the Bible to examine us, looking for things God can't accept. I won't focus on this, but I will say that I don't know if I've ever been more jealous of three pastors than I was this week. So our outline 
tells us, or the first portion, seeking to understand why Jesus came. Uh, that'll be the main portion of what we cover. The last two are smaller sections, but uh, whether weather matters, and then weighed, measured, and found what? So first, why did Jesus come? Uh, last spring, I spoke at a college retreat, and uh, my my talks were on the mission on a mission from God, and it wasn't unpacking the Blues Brothers, but it was uh, unpacking the mission that Jesus Himself came for, and we have lots of ideas from the Gospels about why Jesus came, but there are several places throughout Scripture that Jesus says specifically, this is why I came. And so it would be helpful for us to understand those or receive those, and many of them are easy to, to take hold of because they're so comforting and so helpful. Even in, in Luke, in Luke 4.43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So you ask Jesus, why did you come? And his answer is clearly to preach the good news of the kingdom. In Luke 5, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so you ask Jesus, why did you come? And his answer is, I came to call sinners to repentance. And in Luke 19, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And you ask Jesus, why did you come? And his answer is, to seek and save the lost. And then even outside of Luke, in Mark chapter 10, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you ask Jesus, why did you come? I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And in John 18, speaking to Pilate, Jesus says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus, why did you come to bear witness to the truth? Many of these, many of you have probably heard before. I mean, these are, these are comforting words. I almost titled the Luke sermon series, To Seek and to Save the Lost, but then I bought R.C. Sproul's two-volume expository sermon series on Luke. And it was called To Seek and to Save the Lost. And I was like, what in the world? So, And then you come to Luke 12. Right here in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. 
I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus, why did you come? I came to cast fire on the earth and not to give peace, but rather division. What is this fire? What is the fire that Jesus says, this is why I came to cast fire on the earth and I wish it were already kindled. What is this fire? You know, some, some commentators say, well, this, this must mean the, the fire of Pentecost. When, when the Holy Spirit comes down in flames, tongues of flames and, and lights on the believers and, and the Holy Spirit baptizes the believers and there's a new, the new covenant moves forward in all of its uh, glory. And now that, that may be very comforting. It doesn't seem to fit at all what he's saying. It doesn't seem like it's a good thing that he's talking about. And in fact, Luke only uses the words for fire seven times in all of Luke. And one time, it's just talking about the fire that Peter is warming himself at uh, the night before the crucifixion. Five of them, six if you include this one, but let's exclude this one as we're asking the question, what does he mean? Five times that Luke talks about fire, whether it's in Christ's own mouth or, or from someone else, it is a fire of judgment and the last days. It is a fire of purifying. This seems to be that fire that Jesus is saying, I came to cast fire on the earth. I came to bring justice to earth. I came to burn away all that's wrong with the earth. You know, maybe we are uncomfortable with it because it sounds like he's saying that he's longing for judgment for the wicked. But in one sense, again, we look at the rest of Scripture and even at Jesus' own heart, I came to seek and save the lost. It's not that he's just longing for the wicked to get theirs. And I've shared this with you before when my children would come to me and, and bring a complaint, bring an issue worthy of parental intervention. Okay, when my kids would come and tattle on each other. And they would, they would come and tell me what their sibling had done. And, and I would say, oh, yeah, it sounds like 
it sounds like your brother, it sounds like your sister is, is ensnared in sin. And we have the opportunity to pray for her. So let's pray for her and, or pray for him. And then, and then we'll go and sit down and talk and see if we can't, see if you can't gain a brother through repentance. And they would just stare at me like I'd stopped speaking English. And then I'd say, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did you want me to get him? And then it's always like, uh, yes. <laughs> but is that what Jesus is? Is Jesus like, oh, I can't wait till they get theirs. It's not so much that he's looking for the, the wicked to get theirs. He's just, he's longing for wickedness to be purged from creation. Any of you, most of you, all of you have experienced wickedness against you. And do you not long for that to be purged from this earth? Many of you, most of you, all of us have done wicked things. And do you not long for that to be purged from your heart? To be cleansed finally, to be purified. Even, even creation longs for this, for this purifying, for this this final fire that will just free all of creation from the wickedness that is subjected to. In Romans 8, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In one sense, Jesus is just longing for his creation to be freed from the shackles of sin and corruption and wickedness and all that has corrupted his creation. I came to do that. I came to accomplish that. I came to bring fire to the earth and I wish it were already kindled. He longs for your deliverance, for my deliverance. And he also, in a very human and real way, longs for it to be over what he has to do to accomplish it. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So for those of you who have ever received unhelpful and ungodly counsel when you are facing a dreadful future, 
and you are filled with anxiety and you are filled with distress and someone has, in a very Job-friend-like way, suggested that perhaps you're just not trusting God enough. Perhaps you're just, maybe you need more faith. Here is the perfect Son of God looking at his future crucifixion and his description of it is, I am distressed until that day comes. It's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians in the passage that Cheng preached for us last Sunday. Paul says, I am hard-pressed. I am distressed in having to choose between the two. I am I am pressed upon by this. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ. What is it? This can't be Jesus' baptism that we witnessed under John the Baptist's hand. Because he's already been baptized there. What is this baptism that Jesus dreads? In Psalm 88.7, the psalmist says, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. In Mark 10, this same phrasing, when two of Jesus' disciples ask if they can sit at his right and left hand, And he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus is talking about the baptism of the wrath of God poured out in justice for sin. That Jesus will drink the cup of God's wrath, and drain it to its dregs, that he will have the wrath of God poured out onto him for all sinners. I don't recommend the movie uh, The Passion of Christ, mostly because I just try not to recommend any movies from the pulpit. That seems too much. Uh, But the opening of that movie has this image of, of Satan with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And basically just laying out before him sin after sin after sin of sinner after sinner after sinner and saying, For this? Will you die for this? Will you take God's wrath over this? What this person has done? All of us have those things that shock us awake at night or keep us from sleeping that Satan loves to bring back to our memories that we're just so filled with shame over and wish we could take back words we've said, actions we've committed. And Jesus 
took the wrath, the rightful wrath of God for that sin on himself. He was baptized with that wrath of God. See, as, as Tim Keller put it, if Jesus really was crucified and rose from the dead, then we have to listen to everything he says. If he didn't rise from the dead, we don't have to listen to anything he says. It's not a matter of whether you agree with everything Jesus has said or whether you even like everything Jesus has said. It is purely a matter of did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he did, then he's right when he says, I'm the only way. And if Jesus is the only way, there will be division on earth. Because there will be those who accept that Jesus is the only way and those who do not accept that Jesus is the only way. It sounds so strange when Jesus says, I did not come to give peace on earth. I mean, many of us would be like, hey, so... Jesus, we have a really cute Christmas pageant every December, and some four or five-year-old is going to stand up on the stage and tell us, actually, that's exactly why you came. And they will stand in for an army host of angels that said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. I think that is exactly why you came. Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The peace that Jesus will bring will increase without ending. It's like a mathematical anomaly. It increase, the increase of the peace that he brings will have no end. It will keep increasing and increasing and increasing. How is it that Jesus says, I have not come to give peace on earth? He says it in the, in the idea of Jeremiah's condemnation of the priests and the prophets just prior to the exile. In Jeremiah 6, 13 and 14, he says, From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And in Luke 19, Jesus will draw near to Jerusalem. There will be people praising him. Hosanna! Save us, O Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And rather than being excited, he'll weep. He weeps as he approaches Jerusalem and he says, Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. See, before Christ can usher in peace, he must go to the cross. He has not come to just say, look, everything's fine. It's going to be fine. We talk sometimes in, in different circles about the difference between peacekeepers and peacemakers. Peacekeepers approach life as peace at all costs. Don't enter conflict. Don't allow conflict. Run from conflict. Don't let, like, just make everyone happy. Keep everyone happy. But a peacemaker knows that sometimes you have to enter the conflict in order to resolve the conflict. Anyone who's been married for more than 38 seconds knows this truth. That when you hit conflict... The answer is not, oh, well, let's not talk about that anymore. I mean, you'll be married for three months and you will no longer talk to each other. You have so many things you can't talk about. But rather, in order to actually have peace, you have to enter the conflict and figure out what's going on. The peace that Jesus has come to bring doesn't just come with a pretty little baby born in a manger. It comes at the cross and in an empty tomb. In James 4, James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. So said, flip that. Friendship with God will mean enmity with the world. And that division will even go all the way into households. The very building block of society that God himself blessed. There will be division over who Christ is and why he came. Jesus has come to bring the fire of cleansing and purification to the earth by being baptized with the wrath of God for sin. And you cannot have peace with God and peace with sin. You cannot have peace with God and make peace with sin. And the second two paragraphs just sort of flow out of this. Jesus essentially says, How can you not see this? How do you not understand that we are at, like we are at the historical 
moment in history of creation. How do you not get this? He says, man, you can, you can look at clouds coming out of the west and say, oh, the rain's coming. I can feel it. I can feel it in my knee. Rain's coming. You can you smell that? It smells like rain. Yep. Yep, it's going to rain. And then it does. And you're like, look at how smart that old man is. Or the wind starts blowing from the south. It's going to be a scorcher. Oh yeah. Yep, it's going to be hot. I mean, it'll be a dry heat, but it'll be hot. And then it is. And you're right, and you're brilliant. My uh, my brother, for an entire year, tracked the accuracy of weather apps. Like with their uh, temperature predictions and their rain predictions. Tracked it for a year. like And like, if he was away, had one of his daughters, make sure she filled in the database. I mean, daily tracked. I know, aren't you glad that he's not here? <laughs> See, so I'm way less weird than him. Uh, and I'll, uh, you know, you can take me to lunch and I'll tell him you took me to lunch and I'll tell you what he found was the most accurate app. But, you know, we... We can predict weather. We have actuarial charts to predict the stock market. I mean, you can make money, you know, even with the stock market falling. But, like, we have predictions for how the money's going to go. We have predictions for, for real estate prices. We can make predictions for sports outcomes. Like, I'll make a prediction right here. You can take this to the bank. The Browns aren't going to the Super Bowl. And it pains me to make that prediction, but... You know, I don't want to say they are and then have to get stoned. We make all kinds of predictions. We can look at all kinds of things in heaven and earth, Jesus says. So how can you possibly miss this, he says to the crowds. Like there is nothing in Jesus' life that does not point to he's the son of God come to earth to do something. Everything he teaches Everything he does, his interactions, he casts out demons, he raises the dead, he heals the sick. How can you not see what is going on right before you? How do you not see what is the most important thing? That there is a judge, and you will one day stand before him. You know, this idea of being weighed, measured, and found wanting. The phrase is made famous in a, a fun movie. Again, can't make the recommendation, but A Knight's Tale. In A Knight's Tale, it kind of it's repeated over and over. You have been weighed, you have been measured and you have been found wanting. But they're not the first to say that, actually. God said it in Daniel when he wrote on the wall. In Daniel 5, 7, uh, the word 
teke that he writes on the wall. And the king's like, I don't know what this means. And Daniel comes in and says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Jesus says, you have an accuser. Let's just go hypothetical. You have an accuser. And it is the day of. And you and he are heading to the magistrate. But you're just too stubborn to even settle with your accuser. And you will get to the magistrate. And he will drag you before the judge. And he will hand you to the officer. And he will put you in prison until the very last penny of your debt is paid. Literally, it's like the very last half penny. Like it's, it's such a small Hebrew coin, it takes two of them to make the smallest Roman coin. If you think you are going to walk with your accuser before the judge, you will pay your debt to the very last penny. Half penny. You know, we live our lives, we start as children, but it's not just as children. We live our lives just reverberating that phrase. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair that this person got this and this person got that. It's not fair that I don't have what he has or I don't get what she gets. It's not fair that my marriage is like this and his marriage is like that. It's not fair that my job is this and their job is that. It's not fair. And R.C. Sproul reminds us never Never ask for fair. Mercy is what you want. Mercy. Beg for mercy. The kingdom of God is personally present in Jesus. He is saying to the crowds and to you and me, you are on the road. Like, this is it. These are, this is the end. You are on the road to stand before your judge. And do you know what day that will be that you stand before your judge? Did Tim Keller or Harry Reader or Steve Smallman, did they know that this week they would stand before their judge? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to ask Jesus to begin his purifying fire in you by receiving the baptism that he took for you. Today is the day of salvation. To beg for mercy. To seek the reconciliation of God. The only reason you can have peace with God is because God is a God of peace. 
and his wrath was satisfied by his son. Receive that. Be changed by that. Let the purifying fire of God begin its work in you. Let's pray. God, these men, Dr. Keller, Dr. Reeder, Dr. Smallman, they're so much more than just examples. They are men as desperate for your grace as we are here. They are fathers and brothers and grandfathers and husbands. And we pray that even while their families rejoice in knowing where they are, we pray for them as they weep in dealing with where they are not. God, we pray that we would see the urgency of turning to you. Of asking your spirit to burn out the sin that remains in us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for bearing under the wrath of your Father so that we might be delivered. In Jesus' name, amen.